Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 24. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. We were on the Via Della Rosa last week, which means the way of grief, the way of sorrow, the way of suffering, the painful way. This is the road Jesus Christ walked to Calvary. And just to refresh a little bit, in Luke 23, we heard there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin council, a good and righteous man. That council has 71 members. The high priest is the leader and they can decide the fate of any person other than death. Because now that Rome is there, the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate at Jesus time would have had to assign death. Joseph was a member of the council, good and righteous man. He had not consented to their purpose. Indeed, he was looking for the kingdom of God. He's a seeker. He's a God fearer. He's interested in Jesus Christ. He's rich and he had not consented to kill him. He's a rich man. A rich man. This is the first good thing we've heard about a rich man in the Bible. (laughs) All you rich Americans out there that just gave that wonderful donation, uh, who are also looking for the kingdom of God. We're seeking for the kingdom of God. That's not a bad thing in this chapter. The man, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate, to Pontius Pilate. After this big trial, he goes to him. That would have taken a lot of courage because he wants to ask Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of the Roman government, to give him the body of Jesus Christ. That would have taken a lot of courage. He goes into Pontius Pilate, and he, Joseph of Arimathea, took, got permission to take down the body of Jesus Christ. He wrapped it in a linen shroud, a very expensive fabric. And that linen shroud has become priceless today. It's very famous claims on it to be the Shroud of Turin. But we as Catholics, during the time of Lent, we like to do the Stations of the Cross, especially during Lent. And these last two, 13 and 14, Jesus is taken down from the cross and Jesus is placed in the tomb. We cover those tonight. Taken down from the cross, station number 13, the deposition of Jesus from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea took down his body and wrapped it in a linen shroud. Joseph had not consented to their purpose. Indeed, he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was rich and waiting for the kingdom of God. So we see pictures of Joseph of Arimathea often with Nicodemus because Nicodemus was also a Pharisee and he was a a seeker in John. When we studied John three times, he progresses in his journey and he comes to belief at the end and brings enough myrrh and aloe to a hundred pounds, enough for a kingly burial for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He comes to belief. We used to celebrate in the church Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea on March 17th. But then someone took his feast day. (laughs) Who was that? Because he had green beer. Yeah, that one. St. Patrick and St. Joseph of Arimathea got put together with St. Nicodemus on August 31st. And then you see that other guy in the picture with the spear. Did you know, too, that he is a Catholic saint? There he is with the spear. There he is with the spear. The centurion Roman soldier at the base of the cross that had a spear 
We celebrate him on March 15th and also October 6th. He has an extraordinary form and an ordinary form feast day. And his name is St. Longinus. And he has a statue by Bernini in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome that is beautiful, a very prominent place. And he was an unnamed Roman soldier who pierced Jesus in the side with a lance and converted to Christianity. Why? His name is Longinus. Uh, he drove the spear into the side of Jesus. And the Greek is Longe, which means lance. And so his spear has become known as the Holy Lance. The lance, the final major wound of Jesus Christ. He inflicts his stories in John chapter 19. But that act of spearing the side has created the last five wounds of Jesus Christ. It's the wound to his heart. And it says in John 19, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, blood and water come gushing out. He called himself the temple, right? In John two, he's the temple. Blood and water is gushing out of the third temple. He who saw it, Longinus, has borne witness and his testimony, St. Longinus, is true. He knows that he tells the truth that you may also believe. So the moment he lands the side of Christ, water and blood spray out. And I love that from the passion. There's Mary and John and the water's just spraying them in the face, but also it's spraying Longinus in the face. And what is that water and blood? It's, he has an instant conversion because it's the water of baptism and the blood of the Eucharist. Yeah. So he becomes a very good intercessor and a saint for conversions, very quick, immediate conversions through the water and blood that came out the side and sprayed him in the face. He's instantly baptized. And St. Maria Faustina Kowalska of the Blessed Sacrament, a fairly new saint, sainted by John Paul. She wrote in her diary on the night of Sunday, February 22nd, 1931, while she was in her cell, Jesus appeared to her wearing a white garment with red and pale rays emanating from his heart. And in her diary, she wrote that Jesus told her, paint an image according to the pattern you see. And with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you, which she did. And he said, I desire, Jesus said, I desire this image to be venerated first in your chapel and then throughout the world. I promise that the soul that will venerate this image will not perish. That was a private revelation made to Faustina. And it's that same water and blood coming out of the pierced side, the heart of Christ, the fifth wound that pierced his most sacred heart. Doctors tell us that there was a pericardial fluid around his heart, and when the lance pierced it, out came the water and blood. Now, Zechariah predicted this long ago when he said, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Then when they look on him whom they have pierced, that prophecy gets fulfilled. On that day, says Zechariah, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadmerimon in the plain of Megiddo. The only major biblical event that took place at Megiddo was during the reign of King Josiah. And if you remember, Pharaoh Necho II was riding through Palestine on his way to battle, the last major battle between the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And King Josiah, the good, good king, decided to oppose him at the Valley of Jezreel and prevent his army from reaching this important battle. And during that conflict is when King Josiah was struck dead at the plains of Megiddo and killed. 
And they mourned so greatly because they had such great hope for King Josiah. Maybe he was the one God had sent. Maybe he was the Messiah. Mourning throughout the whole land and usually intense. All Judah and Jerusalem together both mourned for Josiah. Zechariah says, the land shall mourn each family by itself. The family of the house of King David by itself, the kings. The family of the house of Nathan by itself, the prophets. And the family of the house of Levi by itself, the priests. Priest, prophet, and kings will mourn the death of this Josiah, who is a typology of Jesus. But on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. And that's the day when he was speared and the fountain was released from his temple. On that day, there will be a fountain open to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. I love this old painting. It's God's fountain, his fountain of mercy when the the spear goes into the heart of his son and releases the fountain of mercy on the world, baptism and Eucharist. God's fountain of love, the five wounds, and the final one being his sacred heart being pierced. The five wounds of Christ, a lot of the mystics had a great devotion to the five wounds. Paul himself in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Many think that Paul had the stigmata, the wounds of Christ, maybe one of the first. In Galatians 6, verse 17, Paul says, Henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. So he may have had stigmata, those wounds of Christ. He was a mystic also. So the beautiful sacred heart, the final wound of Jesus Christ, you see the line, always the cut, where the water of baptism and the blood of the Eucharist suddenly become aware to Longinus, and he's sprayed in it and, and comes to immediate conversion. It's a beautiful thing to contemplate. The medieval mystics calculated the number of Christ's wounds, like all the flaggings and all the little balls and the shards, and they count them all up, and they arrive at a total of 5,466 wounds on his body. 5,461 are minor wounds. They call those minor wounds. That leaves the five major wounds on his body being those five. The two in his hands, the two in his feet at the crucifixion, and the final wound in his pierced side, piercing his most sacred heart. So Longinus gives him that final wound, and it's a life-saving conversion for him. Blood is the central content of the Eucharist. Water is the central content in baptism. So blood and water are the two liquids necessary for our salvation. And John agrees with this, 1 John 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and the blood. And the Spirit is the witness because the Spirit is the truth. There are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these all agree. Not just water of baptism, but also the blood of the Eucharist. And to Faustina, I promise that the soul that will venerate this image will not perish. To venerate means you really embrace it, you kiss it, you commune with it, you you believe in the Eucharist, in the baptism, and partake in that merciful love flowing from his sacred heart. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're baptized into him and his Eucharist. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. A lot of his disciples left him. He wasn't kidding around. He didn't say, no, 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 come back. I didn't mean it literally. Come back. As the father, the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So he who eats me will live because of me, the water and the Eucharist. Now a new Eve was pulled out of the pierced side of Christ, right out of that wound there. A new Eve is pulled out of the pierced side of the new Adam. Paul calls him the new Adam, the second Adam, a new creation, the firstborn son of a new creation. There's a new bride. The old groom is dead. And when one party in the marriage dies, the old marital covenant becomes null and void. It's canceled. The temple, at the moment he dies, the temple curtain is torn, making access back to the father. It's a new covenant. The old one is torn and access back to the father is possible because of Jesus Christ. Jesus has made a gateway back to the father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. I'll take you back to dad. Come on, Sips. Come on, brothers and sisters, because he's the firstborn, and we're his brothers and sisters, and he wants to get us back to the Father. Follow me. So there's a new marital covenant consummated on the cross. This is a spiritual consummation of a new marital everlasting covenant. And when a marriage that pure is consummated, the new life is produced. This is the greatest blessing of God. And so new life is produced in this marriage. And there'll be a gestation period for this new life to grow. And that period will be 50 days. Because in 50 days, it's going to be the most extraordinary jubilee you've ever seen. The Jews, every 50 years was a jubilee. All debt is forgiven. All sin is forgiven. This is an amazing jubilee. And the gestation period is going to birth what? The church. The church is birthed on Pentecost 50 days later. Behold, I make all things new again. It's a new marriage. And the gift is not the Ten Commandments. This time the gift is the Holy Spirit poured out on the new bride. Isaiah 43, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation 21, John is told that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are faithful and true. And he told me it's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. So it's an extraordinary jubilee of mercy on day 50, Pentecost day, that first Christian Pentecost when 120 are gathered in the upper room. Luke writes about it again. And again, there is an overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we know in the New Testament, there's two times that the Holy Spirit overshadows a woman. And Luke writes about both of them. The first time is when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and she conceives. There's something conceived there and she'll give birth to the Word made flesh in nine months. Now the Holy Spirit has come over her again and she will birth the church. Both times Mary overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So that pierced side wound is particularly important. The church is pulled out of a sleeping second Adam on the cross. And that's what happened in the first story, the first creation. Adam is sleeping and his bride is pulled from his side while he sleeps. And Jesus loves that new bride. Mary now is the new Eve being pulled from the side of Christ at the cross. Eve's children, as a result of sin, Eve's children will experience death. Cain, her oldest son, gets banished east of Eden and marked on his forehead. He's marked permanently, so he won't be killed. It's an act of mercy by God. But the new Eve, her children, will experience new life in the new Adam. Not death, but new life. And her children will be washed white as snow with what? That water from the pierced side, baptism. New Adam's pierced side washes the babies clean. Her children will be marked forever permanently, an indelible seal on their forehead with chrism oil of the Holy Spirit. And they will be sealed for the day of their redemption. So not just water for baptism, but also the blood of the Eucharist and the Holy Spirit. So water, blood, Jesus Christ, not with just water and blood, but also the Spirit, all three agree. He who has the Son has life. Those who are in Jesus Christ have no condemnation. So humanity gets a new start, a huge do-over to begin again, a new creation. And it's in a new covenant in his blood, by his blood, he told them at the institution of the Eucharist. And then to help us even more than that, we get seven sacraments, a perfection, a perfection of sacraments. What do they do? They help us get from infancy, from birth to death. They help us. We stay in Christ. We have baptism. We have confirmation, the Holy Spirit again. We have Eucharist to eat the bread of life and live forever. Reconciliation. When we mess up, we can go and be forgiven. We have matrimony, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick when it's time to go access the Father. So a new marital covenant, a new one flesh bride, one flesh bride consummated there at the foot of the cross. This bride looks different. She's dressed in black instead of white. The bride and the groom are united in suffering instead of joy. It's a pale Mary instead of a blushing bride. It's a perfection of sorrow for this new Eve, this new bride. But that sorrow is going to be turned to unspeakable joy in just a few chapters ahead, right? In just a few days. When she's the bride of sorrow, she's called Our Lady of Sorrows, Sorrowful Mother, Mother of Sorrow, Our Lady of Piety, Our Lady of Seven Sorrows. She has a perfection of sorrow in her life, seven. Seven swords pierce her heart. Simeon gave her the first one. She has a feast day in our church called Our Lady of Sorrow, September 15th. It's a powerful feast day. The first sorrow is from Luke 2, the prophecy of Simeon that a sword would pierce her heart. Then they have to flee to Egypt with a little baby. All the, the other babies have been murdered. Herod's after them. Then they lose their child at age 12 in the temple. Luke tells us that. Then she'll meet Jesus on the Via Della Rosa, and they will exchange sorrow. And then the crucifixion on Mount Calvary, the deposition, the piercing of the side, and the deposition, the descent from the cross, and then the burial by Joseph of Arimathea. These are her sorrows that she treasures in her heart, a perfection of sorrow. She has her own chapel in the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. It's beautiful, beautiful. And it's right in between the chapel of nails when he's nailed to the cross and the chapel of crucifixion. And there's the sorrowful mother right in between. Now, do you know the name of the actor who played Jesus in Mel Gibson's Passion? Who is that? Jim Caviezel. That's right. And he did a wonderful job, and we all know him. Do you know the name of the real-life actress who played Mary? No? 
Nobody knows her name. Was she the greatest Mary you ever saw in any movie you ever watched? And you don't know her name and you know Jim Caviezel? This is exactly how Mary would want it. She's the most humble creature on the face of the earth, the lowliest. She would not want you. She would not need you to know her name because you know her heart and she knows yours. And I thought she was an amazing Mary. Her name is Maya Morgenstern. She is a Jewish Romanian actor whose grandfather died in the Auschwitz death camp. Her parents were Holocaust survivors. And she was pregnant all through that role. She was pregnant the entire time they shot that. The shoot finished one month ahead of the birth of her second daughter. So she was nine months pregnant during that movie. And she said being pregnant created such a special luminosity that makeup could never reproduce. Just that she had life within her while filming this movie. And she plays an amazing, sorrowful mother. But her incredible sorrow will be turned to unspeakable joy at the resurrection. In our church, we have an Easter candle. The deacon brings it up on Easter vigil night, and it has the five wounds of Christ in it, nails of the five wounds of Christ. Also, the Jerusalem cross has five crosses. It's the five wounds of Christ. The biggest one is his, his sacred heart. Pope Gregory the Great had a Eucharistic miracle in the seventh century where on the altar, the statue of Jesus started bleeding and the blood dripped into his chalice. He moved the chalice and caught the blood drips into his chalice. It was a Eucharistic miracle, Pope Gregory the Great. Okay, so Jesus is taken down from the cross and placed in the tomb. It was hard to get a big body off the cross, and they were hurried because the sacrifice took place at twilight, 3 p.m., the eclipse from 12 to noon. They got to get them off before Shabbat. Shabbat, Saturday night, starts at sundown, so between 5.30 and 6, depending on the time of the year, they have to get that body down. And Joseph of Arimathea has to go ask Pilate first, can we take the body down? He has to get permission. So that ate up some time. He has to get there, get back, get an appointment with Pilate, you know, get the body down and get it into the tomb before sundown because it's Sabbath. These pictures, uh, here's a Caravaggio, beautiful, that just kind of some commotion, getting him down, getting him off the cross. All these people want to help. The people that stayed, the women, the only apostle there is John. It's a beautiful painting in Madrid by Roger van Vieden. It's huge. It's the deposition of Christ and Joseph of Arimathea helping. He's the one in the middle there getting the body of Christ down. You see Nicodemus with his servant behind him with the pot of the aloe, the 100 pounds of myrrh to spice his body. You see the skull of Adam under the cross. And some of the characters we talk about tonight, Mary of Clopas, St. John the Evangelist, Mary Salame, Mary Magdalene, and Joseph of Arimathea, who asked Pilate for Jesus's body. He wanted to give him a dignified, proper burial. And then Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. And Joseph of Arimathea here is really in between a rock and a hard place. Why? He's going to break the law either way. And he's a member of the Sanhedrin Council. On one hand, if he touches death, what happens if you're a Jew and you touch death? If he touches death, taking Jesus down off the cross, he cannot take part in Shabbat, which is in a few hours. He's going to be unclean. He's going to be unclean. It says in Numbers, all those who touch a dead human body will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. So he can't take part of the Shabbat after Passover. That's a big deal. He's going to give that up to give Jesus a dignified burial. On the other hand, he'll break Deuteronomy 21 if he leaves Jesus up on the cross. Because if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and is put to death and hung on a tree or a cross, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall bury him by the same day. So he's got a dilemma there. And he's going to honor Jesus Christ and his body. 
because as Catholics, we honor the body. That's why we take very good extra care of the body. Even after someone dies, we dignify the body. And so you see artists were very moved by this scene of the body being placed into the lap of Mary. Michelangelo, the Pieta, this beautiful painting of Mary holding her son one last time. Joseph of Arimathea took the body down. He wrapped it in a linen shroud, and they're in a hurry to get that body into the tomb, and they have to say goodbye quickly. And so you can imagine just the tension of that scene as they're trying to move him and get, and the sun's going down. Joseph laid him in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever yet been laid. Matthew says it was his own tomb, the tomb he had bought and purchased for himself. In advance of his death, he's giving it to Jesus Christ. He buys the linen. He takes the body down. And this will fulfill Isaiah 53, the suffering servant psalm that says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. So there's a... Church, the Holy Sepulchre is built over the spot, the tomb where they laid him. Luke tells us it was the beginning of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So they're in a hurry. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb and how the body was laid. They returned to prepare spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So they had to hurry. They lay him on this anointing stone, this slab. They anoint his body what they can. They get him into the tomb. But then they have to wait a whole day because Shabbat's starting for the Jews at 6 p.m. So it won't be over. They have to wait a whole day before they can get to the tomb. And you know, they're chopping at the bit. They love Jesus. They want to go give him a proper anointing of his body, these women. And they are the seven myrrh-bearing women in the Bible. And we piece all the scriptures together. All the gospel accounts have to be pieced together. But Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Cleophas, Joanna the wife of Herod Steward, Salome the mother of James and John, Zebedee's wife, Susanna, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha, the sister of Lazarus. So we see a perfection of seven women coming to the garden to anoint his body. When one woman, Eve, was in the garden and she fell, seven women will come to anoint the new Adam back in the garden again. Now, some of the accounts have there be eight myrrh-bearing women. So I thought, who is the eighth one? And I found this painting, and the eighth one is Mary, Theotokos. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Did you ever wonder when did she find out that he rose? It's not in the scriptures. We just have to imagine. But surely Jesus, in this painting, Jesus goes to her first and and shows himself that he has risen from the grave before the other women. Mary Theotokos, the eighth myrrh-bearing woman. You can imagine her putting her son in the tomb and, and kissing him goodbye the last time before they roll the stone over. And she says goodbye. So she wrapped him in linen in Luke chapter 2 and laid him in a manger. And now she'll wrap him in linen and lay him in a tomb. So from the womb to the tomb and the linen and the linen. This is the tomb, the actual a picture of the front part of the tomb. There's a huge painting of the risen Christ above the tomb. And now we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, these women who are so anxious, they wake up at the crack of dawn. They went to the tomb and taking the spices which they had prepared because they're going to give him a proper anointing. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb and they went in, but they did not find the body. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.